Words of power that never fail. Do you believe that about the Bible? Do you believe that about every word from Genesis to Revelation? From the very first word of the Bible to the very end of it, we have words of power that can never fail. As Christians, we are those who build our lives on Scripture. And it's one of the reasons why, as a church, we practice expositional preaching. We come to this portion of our service, and it's a portion of instruction. It's not an opportunity for you to hear from, from some person their kind of ideas and opinions about life or advice to help you get through your day, some sort of pop psychology for you. This is a time where God speaks to us through his word. And so the job of the preacher is to, as best as he can in his fallenness and fallibility, to present to God's people God's word so that God speaks to his people. And so that's what we come to at this part in our service. As you see, the the service is really just continuous from beginning to end. We are worshiping from beginning to end. This is just another aspect of our worship as we are instructed from the Lord. So people of God, hear the word of God. If you would turn with me this morning to Genesis 47. Genesis 47. We are in... The final chapters of the Joseph story and of Genesis. Sometimes when you are going through a book or a portion of scripture, you have these these little parts that become kind of little series within a series. I remember we were going through the Sermon on the Mount. I found that that kind of happened with the Lord's Prayer. So I ended up spending quite a bit of time on the Lord's Prayer. So it sort of became a little series on prayer within the larger series of The Sermon on the Mount. And that's kind of what we are doing here with Genesis. As we come to the end of this book of Genesis, which is the larger series, we have been looking at this specific story within that larger book, the story of Joseph. And we are reaching the end of both. Because the end of Genesis, or I should say the end of the Joseph story, marks the end of Genesis. And in fact, it's interesting how abruptly Genesis ends. We'll see that when we get to chapter 50 as it deals with Joseph and his request to his brothers about his his body after he dies. But we will just immediately go, we won't, (laughs) but you, if you're reading, will go immediately into the book of Exodus. We're we're actually going to to move to the New Testament. We're not just going to keep going, although I thought about it, but we're not. We're not. We're going to Go to the New Testament. We may come back to Exodus at some point in the future. But as we've been going through the book of Genesis and as we've been going through this story of Joseph, we have seen that it is about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so very fitting that we would start this morning with the song, Behold Our God, because that's what we've been doing from the very beginning. We've been beholding our creator, creator, covenant-keeping, redeemer, God all the way through the book of Genesis. And this is fleshed out ever since the end of of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12. It has fleshed itself out in God showing himself to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's how he will reveal himself throughout scripture. That is how he will reveal himself to Moses at the burning bush. He will say he is the God of the patriarchs. Last week, we saw the entire family 
reunited. Joseph and his two sons are brought together with Jacob and his other descendants. We've kind of got these two parts of the family. We've got Jacob and all of his descendants together in Canaan. And then we've got Joseph and his two sons, also descendants of Jacob, in Egypt. And what we got last week was the reunion of these two branches of the family. One, 67 strong. The other, just three. After 22 years of separation... After 22 years of of this family being splintered in this way, now the Lord sovereignly and providentially reunites them, brings them together. But surprisingly, this reunion does not happen in the promised land. That's what you would expect. You would expect that everything would be nice and happy there in Canaan, the land of promise, the land that God promised he would give to Abraham and his descendants, and they would reunite in Canaan, and all would be well. But that's not what happens at the end of Genesis. They do not reunite in the land of Canaan, but rather in a foreign land. They reunite in the land of Egypt. And so the title for the sermon last week was The Family on the Move. Jacob and his entire household moves to Egypt with all of their possessions. So it's the great migration, the great relocation. The whole family with everything they have uproot and they move to an entirely new land. The land of Egypt. Yes, God had said to Abraham, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. God had said this very explicitly from the beginning and there we get it. Canaan mentioned in chapter 17 verse 8. God had told Abraham that he would give him this Land, But God had also said to him these words. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Now, at this point in the overarching narrative of Genesis, it is clear that Egypt is that place. In Genesis 15, when God said those words to Abraham about them being in a foreign land for a time and becoming servants there, he did not tell Abraham what land that would be. He did not specify or identify the land that they would move to. But now we see in the narrative of Genesis that this land... This foreign land is the land of Egypt, where the descendants of Abraham must go. There, they will be settled. Then, they will be enslaved and afflicted. Then, they will be brought out by the mighty hand of God with great possessions In the Exodus. And that's why Genesis ends so abruptly and moves right into the Exodus because that's what's next. That's what's on the horizon. They'll settle, 
They'll be servants and be afflicted in due course. And then God will bring them out in the greatest event, apart from the Christ event, the greatest event in human history. The bringing out of the people of God from Egypt in the millions. God's providence was behind all the events leading up to this. The favoritism of Jacob, the hostility between brothers, the selling of Joseph into Egypt, the dreams of Pharaoh and his servants, the trials and exaltation of Joseph in Egypt, the famine in the land, the brothers coming to Egypt to buy food, the testing of the brothers and their reconciliation with Joseph, and now The settlement of Jacob's entire household in Egypt with Joseph protected from famine. All of these events woven together from the hand of God. From the hand of a sovereign, providential, in control God. In these events, God was setting up the exodus. Yes, but even more. In these events, God was setting up the storyline of the whole Bible, the storyline of redemption. The Bible is about redemption. The Bible is not just a series of books that can be kind of torn apart and patched together to give some kind of practical advice for life. The Bible is, I suppose, in in a way, a, a guide for life, if you want to think about that in the most robust, deep way. But more fundamentally than that, the Bible is a story. It is a story of redemption. One narrative of God's redeeming love. And the reason I say that all of these events are setting up this story of redemption is because they are creating a people, they are establishing a people who will be based on mercy, redemption, and promise. Why did God do it this way? If God is so in control, why would he have a people go into a land and become slaves there so he could then bring them out? I mean, why not bypass the whole slavery bit? Wouldn't that be nicer of God to do it that way? Why slavery? Why must there be affliction in the story? Well, that's a question that can be answered From various angles. But one of the main reasons for that. Is because in heaven. Paul celebrates this at the end of Romans 11. In heaven. You will have a great congregation of people. Who are worshiping God for his mercy. They are worshiping a God. Who has come to them in their pitiful state. In their undeserving state. And who has grabbed hold of them in that state. And has purchased them and brought them out. Redeeming them for himself. That's what we'll be worshiping God for. In heaven. A God of mercy. A God of redemption. And a God of promise. This great storyline of the Bible is set up. Here at the end of Genesis with the people of God moving into a place in which they will be enslaved. More than that, it points to our specific redemption. 
For every Christian, there is an exodus. Have you experienced the exodus of God? Have you experienced God with a mighty outstretched hand reaching down into your broken, rebellious heart, giving you life and bringing you out of sin and death into righteousness and life? That's what it means to be a Christian. Conversion is radical. It is not experienced in the same way by everyone. And for those who are saved when they're children versus those who are saved when they're adults, there's a difference in terms of our memory of that. But what we need to understand is for every Christian at the center is an exodus. God bringing us out of slavery and redeeming us to freedom. The story, too, reminds us that the path of God's plan is difficult. The path of God's unfolding plan of redemption is a winding and bumpy road with many surprises. So maybe this morning you're on a smooth stretch. Not windy. It's not bumpy. No surprises. Everything's going according to plan. Maybe that's you. What you need to understand is that life is not in general for the Christian that way. It's not that way for anyone in a fallen world. But those who are, who, whom God is sanctifying, whom God is bringing to their destination, this is just a moment for you. There will be bumps. There will be surprises. Maybe that's you this morning. You're right on a bump. You're on a bumpy stretch. And you just need to be reminded as you read Genesis 47 and the context that the people of God have always endured bumps. That's the way it is to be a Christian, to be a believer, to belong to this God. But at the end of this bumpy road is an eternally straight and soft road of joy. That's the promise held out for every Christian. So today we come to the resettlement of this family. Jacob and his family settle in the land of Egypt. The title for the sermon this morning is A New Home. So last week, the family on the move. This week, we have the settling itself. So a new home. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 47, 1 to 31. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt... Is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land 
Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojournings are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. That's a bumpy road. Verse 10, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh. And four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt 
and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. You can be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his help as we come to his word that the Lord would make it applicable to our own individual circumstances and that he would bow our hearts in worship and elevate his son before our eyes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. You illuminate your word and you apply it to the hearts of your people. You stick us with different things. It it is amazing often after sermons to just talk with people and to hear the different things that strike their minds or their hearts and to see how you are applying your word in very specific ways to, to individuals and how that's different across the board. Father, we thank you that you are this kind of personal God. You are not just the God of your people in general. You are not just the God over Four Corners Church, but you are the God and Father of each of us who belongs to Jesus, who has been united by faith to your Son. So, Father, we praise you this morning that you work in our hearts in that way, and we ask you today that you would shine forth your glory in the face of Christ to us through your word. We pray that we would see you, that we would trust you freshly, and that our hearts would be set on fire with love for you. And that that love for you would be so powerful and so burning within us that the love that we have for the things of this world, the love that we have for uh, the things we are tempted with, or the sins that we are involved in or have been involved in, that, that our love for those things would be turned to hate. That we would hate what you hate and love what you love. Father, we pray that you would do this this morning through your word. We believe that we are praying to you, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not in vain, but trusting you, God, that you hear us. You are there, and you work, and you listen. So we come. We ask. We ask you, Abba, to be present today and to change us. Lord, we are in need of your mercy every hour. And so we pray for help. In Christ's name, amen. So, as we come to a text like Genesis 47, I think what we have here really are three major movements throughout this chapter. So I want to give those to you. You'll find them up here on the slide. Three movements to this chapter, this narrative within the larger narrative. First, the command. The command. Second, the contrast. And then third, the confidence. So first, the command. And I do want to reread verses 1 to 12 to put those in view. So here they are. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen, and from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. 
Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. It's an amazing sight to think of this old man blessing this Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt. In the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. In these 12 verses, which open up this chapter, we have an audience with the king. Pharaoh is probably the most repeated word in this chapter. In the opening 12 verses, we have this audience with the king. Pharaoh finally meets and interacts with Joseph's family. Up to this point, Uh, it's been just Pharaoh and Joseph. And you imagine Joseph and Pharaoh have many interactions. I mean, Pharaoh really appreciates Joseph. He, He, I believe, even loves Joseph. They have probably by this point become quite good friends and and he trusts Joseph. He gives everything into his hands. And when he finds out that Joseph has a family and that here his family is here, I imagine that Pharaoh is eager to meet them. And so finally, Pharaoh meets and interacts with some of the other members of this family. And this begins with a delegation of five brothers representing the family. It's not clear why there are five, but that's how many come and present themselves before Pharaoh. Joseph, for whatever reason, chose five. And they came and stood before Pharaoh. At the end of chapter 46, Joseph had wisely instructed them to make clear to Pharaoh that they were by occupation keepers of livestock, that they were shepherds. Uh, Joseph is wisely moving. All, all we see of Joseph throughout this entire story, going all the way back to chapter 37, is this divinely given wisdom. That all throughout, Joseph is, is able to think about the cause and effect relationships involved. He's able to navigate the political life of Egypt. He's able to bring reconciliation and comfort to his brothers. And here he, he counsels his brothers. When you stand before Pharaoh, we read this at the end of the last chapter. When you stand before him, make sure that you make clear to him that you are shepherds. Since shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. This is quite convenient. Since that was the case, this would ensure that they are settled in the land of Goshen. Why? Because Goshen is a kind of a separate land. It's a separate area. It's not right in the heart of Egypt. It's not an urban kind of context, but it's a place outside of the, the sort of soup of Egyptian culture and Egyptian Life. It is a prosperous but separate portion of the land. 
It's got both of these qualities. It, it's good land for, for grazing cattle, but it is also land that puts the Israelites separate, distinct from the Egyptians. Well, now the time comes. And as Joseph anticipated, Pharaoh asks about their occupation. Uh, Joseph said to his brothers, when Pharaoh asks about your occupation, he knows this man and he knows what he's going to say. He's going to ask about their occupation. And that's exactly what happens here. As he anticipated, Pharaoh asks that and they respond in this way. Verses 3 and 4. Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. We have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants. Flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. The Pharaoh's response to the brothers is overwhelmingly favorable. He turns to Joseph. You imagine the brothers, they say this to Pharaoh. Pharaoh turns to Joseph, his right-hand man, and he says to him, settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. And then he specifies in accordance with their wishes. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And to this he adds. If you know any able men among them. Put them in charge of my livestock. Now we don't know whether some of the men were put in charge of Pharaoh's livestock. Uh, I think the implication here maybe is that they're not. Uh, Commentators differ on this. But probably Joseph just sort of passed over uh, that little detail there. Because to put some of his brothers in charge of Pharaoh's livestock is to what? It is to put his brothers right in the center of Egyptian culture. All that Joseph is about here is separateness and distinction, not assimilation. And so, it is probably the case that this little request just goes ignored. But Pharaoh here says, settle them in Goshen. Later in verse 11, the author will describe this as a command from Pharaoh. That's the reason for the first point. The command Verse 11, Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Now, what's the significance of this? Why is this our first point to look at as we go through this narrative? Well, this emphasis on Pharaoh's command or directive is meant to tell us That this settlement of God's people in Egypt, in this place, is official. It is sealed. It is guarded. This is is taking, making roots. It is coming from the highest authority in the land. The Pharaoh himself has issued a decree, a directive, a command saying that land now belongs to these people. God has orchestrated this. God has ensured the safety and prosperity and distinctiveness of his people. But even more importantly, God has quickly established, notice this, God has quickly established his people in the land So that in the space of 400 years, they will grow into a massive nation. So let me put it this way. 
The importance of this command is that this is a nation-building command. By Pharaoh issuing this command with all of his authority, it allows the people to settle there for a long period of time in perfect peace and tranquility and to produce babies. Many of them. Many, many, many of them. So that after 400 years, they will be described as a massive nation. Genesis 12, verse 2. I will make of you a great nation. These were words spoken. Listen to this. It's amazing. These are words spoken to a childless old man with a barren wife who has just left his homeland, everything he knows, everything that is familiar. He's a 75-year-old childless man with a barren wife, and God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And that's what we are seeing the beginnings of here. 70 strong, just in descendants. And in 400 years, they will be that great nation that Moses will come to and bring out of Egyptian slavery. Do you think that Abraham could have envisioned anything like this? If he could see what was going to happen, if he could see what is happening now, and here's what I want to submit to you this morning. He could. He could. Why? Because he had the eyes of faith. See, we can't, Abraham, there's no way Abram could have seen what God would do at a moment like this, much less at a a moment like what we get in Exodus 1, where it's become a, a mighty nation. 400 years later, fast forward 400 years later, the beginning of Exodus. But with the eyes of faith, he could see. And the question I have for you is, can you see yourself in glory? Can you see yourself with your Redeemer? It is the eyes of faith given to us by the Holy Spirit. We live by faith, not by sight. It's the eyes of faith given to us that Paul prays for them for, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you What is the glorious inheritance among the saints? What is his power toward those of us who believe? This doesn't happen without the eyes of faith. We pray that those eyes would be, those lenses would constantly be washed. So that the fog that covers them would be removed. And we would see beyond our circumstances and our trials. And see with faith that there is a homeland for us. That we will be with Christ. That God's promises are indeed true. But right on the heels of this official command that serves to settle God's people, there is another interaction. So first we got the interaction between the, with the brothers. Now we have another interaction, this time between Pharaoh and Jacob. Pharaoh and the patriarch. Their brief conversation centers on Pharaoh's curiosity and Jacob's reflection on his relatively short and difficult life. I mean, I, I really do get the impression here that Pharaoh is just kind of amazed at this old man. 
I mean, he, he's just amazed. This is Joseph's dad? I mean, this is the one who, uh, in whom the Spirit of God is, as, as Pharaoh said earlier with Joseph. I mean, if, if this is the son, and he interprets these dreams, and it's happened. He's seen it happen before his very eyes. And here's his father, this old father of Joseph, I think he's just kind of amazed and, and curious. You know how when you get around, you see a child around, say, a great-grandparent, just asks intriguing questions like, who is this person? What have they seen? What have they done? I get the impression that Pharaoh here is, is just wanting to know about this man's life. And Jacob reflects on it as relatively short and difficult. But what's most important about this interaction is the blessing. One, I love this, one of them, one of them, two men in a room, probably others on the, on the, on the sides, these two men, two children of Adam, two descendants of Eve, two descendants of Noah, stripped down, they're just men, both of them, one of them, Represents the power and the glory of Egypt. But the other represents the power and the glory of God. One of them looks far greater than the other. But that one is far inferior to the other. Jacob is presented as the greater of the two. This old man... Who knows what he's wearing, but he's not the Pharaoh. He's not surrounded by gold and fine linen. He's the greater because he's the one giving the blessing. Hebrews 7, 7. It is beyond dispute. The writer of Hebrews is saying no one would agree with this. No one would disagree with this. It is beyond dispute. He's talking about Melchizedek, by the way, in Abraham, which we looked at back in Genesis 14. But this is the point. He says it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Who's superior? Jacob. This wandering man who is 130 years old. But Pharaoh's a god, right? No. An onlooker would not have seen it this way. Listen closely, Christian. Had you been in that room, you would not have seen Jacob as the superior and Pharaoh as the inferior. But such is the nature of the world. Such is the truth. Christians, though often brought low in this life, will inherit the earth. This earth is ours. All of it. This universe is ours. All of it. Forever. Through Christ. The sons and daughters of God will shine like the stars of heaven. Forever in the kingdom of their father. Not so for this pagan man Pharaoh. But yes for this humble old faithful sojourning Jacob. God's kings and priests will reign forever. Many years before God had promised Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. 
Pharaoh's command has shown favor and blessing to this holy household. So now God blesses him through the patriarch. He has been a blessing. Pharaoh has been a blessing to this family. Of course, that wasn't something Pharaoh could pat himself on the back for because that was all God's doing. But he has nonetheless been an instrument of blessing for the family. And so in accordance with God's words of promise, God blesses Pharaoh through this family. And this is a pointer, of course. To God's grand mission to bring blessing to all peoples through Abraham's offspring. The picture that we have here is of this offspring of Abraham bringing blessing to this pagan man and therefore representing his entire nation, this king. And many, many, many years later, one will come from Jacob, the Christ, through whom all the nations of the earth would be Blessed. The mission of God is being anticipated, reflected, pointed to here in this encounter. And it doesn't take long to see the effect of this blessing. And that moves us to our second point, the contrast. In verses 13 to 26, we have Canaan and Egypt. I won't reread these verses in particular, but we have Canaan and we have Egypt. The people of Canaan and Egypt are being ravaged by famine. Their survival is at stake. And so they come to Jacob, the one who is in charge of food distribution under Pharaoh. And the transaction that ensues comes in three stages. So it's very, it's very uh, transactional. You have the people coming to Joseph. Joseph says one thing. The people come back and Joseph says another. And they're just sort of going back and forth in this three-stage transaction. So first, they give all their money to buy food. Second, they give all their livestock to buy food. And then third, they give themselves and their land to buy food. They essentially become tenant farmers in the land, paying a 20% tax on all that the land produces, which actually is, is, is quite moderate considering what we find elsewhere in the ancient world, particularly in Mesopotamia, where the tax on land can be far greater. So they have sold themselves to the king, and now they have their seed and their land, but they must give one-fifth of the produce to the king, to Pharaoh, And it is not Joseph who proposes this, but the people themselves propose this. It's not as though uh, Joseph is trying to extort money from them, as though he's, he's trying to make them destitute. They themselves bring this up. Verse 19, buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. And afterwards, their response to Joseph is pure gratitude. Notice, they're not resentful against Joseph. They're not bitter against him, saying, oh, this man, he brought us into slavery. No, this is what they say. Verse, as we see here in uh, verse 25, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. They are eager to do this because they recognize that had Joseph not done this and not accepted their offer, they would all be dead. And all their little ones, all their households, dead. 
Genesis 45, 5, Joseph knew this was his mission from the Lord, part of it. He says to his brothers, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to what? To preserve life. And so what we have here is Joseph, God, Joseph is an instrument in God's hand to preserve even these people, these pagan Canaanites, these pagan Egyptians, to preserve them from famine or through famine from starvation. Recurring throughout this section is the point that this is done for Pharaoh. It is Pharaoh, not Joseph, who profits from it. Joseph is here presented as a faithful servant. He is, he is doing what he ought to do for his master, for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is shown to be a blessed man, to tie it back to Jacob's blessing. He is shown to be one who is the recipient of God's blessing. Jacob's blessing is working itself out on Pharaoh's behalf. But that's not the main thing I want you to see. The main thing I want you to see here is the contrast. The contrast. This is the condition. You have to see this. What we've just read a little while ago, this this hunger, this starvation, this lack of all resources so that they have to bring themselves and present themselves into slavery. This is the condition of all the people of Canaan and Egypt. Aside from the priests, this is the condition of all the peoples. You have to see this. All the peoples in the place from which Jacob's family came and all the peoples in the place to which they have now come. This is their condition. They are destitute and desperate, so desperate that they must become slaves of the king to survive. So how does this compare with the condition of God's people, the household of Jacob? Look at verses 27 to 28. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Do you see this contrast? Prospering, owning, multiplying. And for 17 years, the number of years that Jacob had with his son Joseph before he was sold into slavery, the same number of years, for 17 years, Jacob is right in the middle of it. These 17 years could not be described as evil to use Jacob's language. But these are years of peace, of tranquility. These are years of certainty. These are years of family. These are years of intense blessing. 17 years, he is right in the middle of it. I want to say something to us this morning about the difference between the people of God and the people of the world. It is not the case, as some prosperity preacher folks and writers and others, television personalities say, that 
God promises that we will be uh, earth prosperous in a material way in this life. We know that's not true. It's ridiculous. Jesus himself says, I'm homeless. He's homeless. Doesn't even play, have a place to lay his head. He goes to the cross, naked, dying, bleeding, mocked. And his premier follower, Paul, who worked harder than them all, was beaten, shipwrecked, sleepless nights, persecuted, It's not the case that Christians are promised that we'll have prosperity in that sense in this life. Though God does prosper our way, whatever that means in his wisdom. But what we have here is a a physical picture of a spiritual reality. I want you to see that is we have a contrast here that we we have to just pause on for a moment. And the contrast is this. We have this state of destitution. We have this state of utter poverty. This state of enslavement and desperation contrasted with this state of perfect peace, possession, and prosperity. And that is the difference between an unbeliever and a believer. If we could pull back the veil and see into the life and the heart of every person. The contrast between a believer is great. An unbeliever and a believer is great. Just in the letter of Ephesians alone, Paul describes the believer as someone who is life, who has life. The unbeliever is someone who is dead in trespasses and sins. The believer as sons of light or a son of light. The unbeliever as darkness. The believer as someone who has been sealed in hope. And the unbeliever as someone who has no hope without God in the world. So we... See here a picture of the great contrast that exists between the people of God and those who do not know this God. But how does this family think about this new home? As we finish up this morning, I want to go to the confidence. Let's look at those final verses, verses 29 to 31. How does this family... Think about this prosperous new home. Verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now, if you were just reading this and you had not read all of Genesis before it, you wouldn't really think much piety is here. You wouldn't really see much faith here. You wouldn't really see much significance here in this man wanting to be buried in one place rather than another. But if you take in all that we have taken in from Genesis and read these words in context, they force us to ask this question, where are Jacob's eyes? Or this, where is Jacob's heart? And the answer is on the land of promise. This good and prosperous land of Egypt is only temporary. 
Let me ask you that. Is this good and prosperous land of earthly life temporary for you? Or is this something that you want to be always? Are you, are you just passing through what for you at this season of life might be a good and prosperous earthly place? Or are you just passing through as a pilgrim? Not clinging, not holding tightly, not nestling down into, but passing through. Well, that was Jacob and his family. This land was only temporary. Regardless of how good of a land it was, oh, it was so nice. Temporary. God had told Abraham that they would come back to the promised land. And this was the same message given to Jacob. 46.4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. So it is with great confidence in the promises and purposes of God that Jacob, in his last days of life, turns his eyes, the eyes of faith, the eyes of his heart, he turns his eyes back to Canaan. Not just because that's where dad and grandpa are buried, but because that is the land of promise. And just as Abraham was buried there in hope and faith, just as Isaac was buried there in hope and faith, so too must Jacob be. So, back in chapter 24, Abraham had done something similar. He had made his servant swear that he would not take a Canaanite wife for Isaac and that he would not take Isaac away from the land. Remember that passage. Abraham said, do not, do not have my son Isaac marry a Canaanite woman. Go back to our family. Go back to Mesopotamia and find a wife for my son. And then he says to him, but do not let him leave the land of Canaan. Similarly, Jacob here makes Joseph swear that his body will be taken back to the land of Canaan to be buried with his fathers. Jacob, too, will be buried in faith. So, Christian, I want to go back to that question I asked a moment ago. How tightly do you cling to God's promises? How tightly do you cling to this world? How confident are you that God will bring about what he has promised to you? You see, when confidence in that begins to decrease, eyes for the world begin to increase. Appetite for the world's pleasures increases as our confidence in God's promises decreases. A heart that is constantly being refreshed and built up with the truthfulness of God's promises and the faithfulness of his character will not latch on to the pleasures of this life because it knows that far greater pleasures await him or her. This is the whole Christian hedonism of John Piper. That we, we truly do seek our own pleasure in God, that is, forever. You are a pilgrim, Christian, passing through, waiting for the land of promise. I want to read 
close with two passages. I want to end where we started this morning. John 14, 1 to 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Philippians 3, 20 to 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is what we cling to, Christian. Every day, through every trial, and through every season of earthly prosperity. As pilgrims, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are sojourners in this world. Lord, would we not live as though we are settled permanently here? Lord, we understand the desire of those who do not know you, who believe only in matter, who believe only in what they can see with their physical eyes, it is no surprise that they will do everything they can to make this life as perfect as it can be because at the end, it's the end. Not so for those of us who know the hope of the gospel. So God, we pray that we would be those who hope in the gospel. May the God of hope, may you fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we might abound in hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.